The reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, and it should be up there, I think. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is God's word. Please be seated. Typically at this time, I uh, dismiss kids for children's church. It looks like many of you already did that. So just a reminder uh, to pick up your kiddos either right before or right after you take communion. If you're just visiting us today, we're in a sermon series on the letter of 1 Corinthians. And if you're wondering why we chose that passage to preach about, that is simply because that's the next passage in the text. And we're in a part of 1 Corinthians that deals a lot with body and sex and sexuality, singleness and marriage, and and so forth. And so that's the section of Corinthians that we are in. I've uh, promised before, and I'll say it again, I'm keeping this about PG-13, but uh, you may have some conversation for uh, parenting that results uh, from this text, but hopefully it'll be fueled and, and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dive into the text today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering of people. Thank you for those that have paused their, their life at home and are tuning in through the live stream as well. We are gathering here uh, to enjoy Christ, to hear again his purposes for us, to hear of his grace and his sanctifying power. And Lord, we want all of our life uh, to belong to him, to glorify him, and to be used for his purposes and purposes alone. So as we look at this specific uh, issue that your word speaks to about body and sex, we pray, Lord, uh, that we would keep these greater purposes in mind that you have ordained in your son, Jesus Christ. So be with us now through the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Most of your environment throughout this week has been reinforcing this message, that you are your own. That's the message that you hear each and every day and each and every week, that you are your own. It's this idol of the sovereign individual that is reinforced in your daily life, in our world, and in our culture. Author Alan Noble details this point in a recent book that tackles this topic. He says that this belief that you are your own, that we built a society and a culture based on self, is actually making an environment that's inhumane, that's actually not contributing to our flourishing. And he makes this point 
by uh, calling this environment similar to what happens in zoos where uh, they use this term called zoocosis. And zoocosis is something that happens to animals that are held in captivity. It's a term that's used to describe captive animals uh, where they are making repetitive movements or they're having behavior that doesn't seem to have any obvious end or purpose. And maybe you've seen this, maybe you've visited a zoo, for example, before, and you see a lion pacing back and forth, and there's really no uh, reason that he's expending all this energy. He's just doing that, this like, instinct that he has. And he goes on to say that the reason for zoocosis is that the exhibit that this lion is living in is actually not what he is made for. It's not the type of environment that he really flourishes in. I mean, in one sense, it was made for him. It's, it's trying to duplicate the uh, habitat uh, that he would uh, be in in nature, but uh, he knows deep in his soul and just in the way that he is, he is uh, uh, conducting his daily life that it's not made for him. And he's acting out on these impulses, but they have no obvious purpose or end because this exhibit is not the actual habitat that's made for him to truly flourish. He goes on to say a world built on the sovereign self is not what we are made for. It is more like an exhibit at a zoo than the habitat that we are actually made for. And since the ultimate purpose of our world is defined by self, then our world and culture becomes a place where these competing views of self is something that we are constantly uh, bombarded by. We're hit each week on ways to self-improve, things to buy, media to consume, and ways to build wealth, all with the promise that if you do these things, then you will uh, have more purpose and be a better true self. But the scriptures we know when we read the scriptures do not start with self as the ultimate purpose of why we exist. The radical assertion that scripture makes uh, is, is summarized really well in the opening question in the New City Catechism, which asks, what is our only hope in life and death? And it answers, quote, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the opposite of what you've been hearing all week. You've been hearing that you are your own, that it's all about self and you, but scripture summarizes our ultimate purpose is grounded in the reality that you are not your own. You were bought with a, a price and you belong to Jesus Christ. Not just part of you, but all of you, and even in life and death, all of you belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, replacing self with this answer will impact every single area of your life. And we could have an entire sermon series that would impact different areas and what it would look like if you were to switch the belief that you are your own with, no, you're not your own, you belong to God, and we could unpack all those different uh, implications in a sermon series. But today we're just going to look at one because the text looks at one area. And that is the area of sex and the body. The question it's seeking to answer is, what can I do with my body? And how you answer that really depends on these first principles that we are already talking about. Where is your starting point and how you even answer that question? And Paul is unpacking two different frameworks for answering that type of question. The first one, the first view, is me and my body. And the second view 
is God and his body. So let's first begin with that first view in verse 12, how Paul is describing this view that is summarized as me and my body. Look at verse 12 with me. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. I have the right to do anything, or some translations might say all all things are lawful. This is likely a common phrase in Corinthian culture that Paul is quoting. It's a common thing that people say or believe in in Corinthian culture. A modern-day equivalent of this would be, if it feels good, then do it. The idea is that concerning the body in this case, Corinthians believe that you can do whatever you want with your body. Even early Christians may have believed if Jesus fulfills the law, then in some ways we are liberated by these strict legalistic rules so that all things are lawful. We can do whatever we want to do. And why did they believe this? Verse 13, Paul gives another example through another detail. He says, you eat because that's just what your body does. And in the end, God's going to destroy both food and the digestive system. And so Paul is drawing attention to this worldview that's behind I have the right to do anything. This is how they view everything under the sun, whether it's your body or whether it's food. And it's this dualism that exists in this person's, in this culture's mind that's between the physical part of your being and the spiritual part of your being. There are two separate parts of what it means to be a human being according to this view. There's the physical part of us that deals with food and sex and property, and those things don't really matter. or They are lower importance because there's a spiritual side to us as well, and the spiritual is what really is important. In addition, and this is the conclusion they draw from that, the physical part doesn't really impact the spiritual part. A truly spiritual person doesn't get too worked up about earthly details, so including your body. And so if your body's hungry, you just feed it. If it's longing for sex, then go for it. The body, that's just what it's for. It's just for, 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 for satisfying the impulses that your body has. And so therefore, your spirituality is limited in the, the different spheres of life that it impacts. Now that's the Corinthian view, but there's modern views that aren't too dissimilar from these. The individualistic view of sex nowadays uh, may have a a different starting point, but the conclusion it reaches is the same as the Corinthians. It's what I do with my body is my business. That's how a modern person thinks about the body. And this is very similar to I have the right to do anything. It's just working out from a different starting point. So when we have the almighty me as the center of our worldview, the center of our purposes, then we get to do with our body, including with what it means to have sex or what's appropriate uh, expressions of that, in a way that is just satisfying our own longings. And as long as we are personally satisfied, then it's okay because I'm at the center and then everything in my life is there for my personal fulfillment. Sex is there for my personal fulfillment. Jobs, food, and even church and spirituality is all about me. And there's another type of separation that might happen in more religious circles that I do want to touch on because I think it's important. And this is one that that concludes that has a more pessimistic view of sex. And the starting point of this 
type of view of sex that says like, oh, it's something to be avoided, or it's something that's gross, it usually starts with this religious separation between the sacred and the secular. The secular is the worldly stuff, the sacred is the religious stuff that God cares about. And there are many religious people that have this view. And it has a similar application to some people in the Church of Corinth, too. But again, it's being worked out in a more modern way. In this view, you're separating the physical from the spiritual. But instead of concluding, do what feels good, you're concluding that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Or to say that God really only cares about the sacred part of our life. Thus, some people with a more pessimistic view of sex would say that sex is dirty or bad or sinful, uh, and that, that uh, maybe in the best-case scenario, if you have to do it, then you can have kids, but if you have to procreate, then make sure that it's, it's under five layers of blankets, in the dark, with most of your clothes on, right? That's the, if you have to do it, just do it for this end, and it's this very pessimistic view of sex. Now, I'm unpacking all these. You have the Corinthian view, the individualistic view, a pessimistic view of sex, to see that how you define purpose, what your starting point is, it matters in answering the question, what can I do with my body? So the Corinthians, their action, their application is, I have the right to do anything. But how they define self is that I'm a two-part being, physical and spiritual. And who God is, based on that worldview, is that God doesn't really care about the physical, only the spiritual stuff. The modern individualist, the action is, what I do with my body is my business. And how we define ourselves is that I'm in charge of my own life. If an action brings me fulfillment, then that's my decision and my prerogative to do that. And it informs who God is, because God may be a part, a being important, not the part, but a part of my world, But really what matters is my individual freedoms and my individual satisfactions. And then the pessimist, again, has the action is that sex and pleasure are to be avoided. And it comes from this view of self that God wants me to be sacred and not worldly, not physical. And God is only concerned with this one part of my life, not the whole thing. In each of these examples, we are misdefining the purpose of our body because the starting point is not the correct one. It's not the place where Scripture starts. It's like using a tool that's not designed for a certain purpose or end. I I do this often because I have uh, these cabinets in my kitchen, and they're at the point where the the screws that are in the hinges of these cabinets are starting to, to kind of loosen up, and the doors are starting to sag off a little bit. And sometimes I I notice it, and I'm like, well, I need to fix this, but I don't have time to try to find a screwdriver to do that. So I just pull out a steak knife or something like that to try to do it. And I have come very close to making that a bloody mess and trying to screw these things in with a knife rather than a screwdriver, because the end of a knife is not to do that type of action. And in a similar way, that's what Paul wants us to do. He's, He's describing this different approach to how you view your, your body, what the purpose of your body is, and how that's expressed in sexual action. And he's saying we got to back up because we have misdefined the purpose that tell us of our bodies how God has designed them. And so now he's going to go from the Corinthian view and even the modern day view of this is me and my body and start with, no, this is God and his body. Let's start there and see what impact that belief has on what we do with our body and sexual activity.
And he unpacks it with very different illustrations that are biblically saturated to make his point. Look at verses 13 to 14 where he begins by connecting it to the resurrection. He says, The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So he states this view from the start. We are not meant to have sex however we want to and in immoral ways. He's going to go detail here in a little bit. The specific issue that is facing his church is that there are individuals that say, it's okay for me to go to the pagan temple. At the pagan temple, there are these prostitutes, and I can go and have my uh, fulfillment of those sexual impulses at the temple with these prostitutes because it's something that God doesn't really care about. In fact, it's my freedom. It's me and my body. So he is starting to ground it in a different reality, saying, remember the gospel. Remember the resurrection. Jesus Christ raised from the dead, not just spiritually, but the entire self of who he is, raised from the dead physically, spiritually, all of who he is, raised from the dead. And then he says, and you will too. And you will raise from the dead not just your spiritual self, but physically your body will be made new. The, the Christian faith isn't this super weird spiritual faith that has not, nothing to do or no cares about the physical nature of us. No, we are a faith that believes in the resurrection of the dead, that our physical bodies matter so much that God is going to liberate them from, from sin and death forever and ever and ever. So therefore, Paul's pushing back. There's no separation between our spiritual selves and our physical selves. Otherwise, why would God raise the dead? But God does raise the dead. And then he goes on from resurrection and then talks about our union with Christ. Look at verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a mem the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now when you hear the words like limbs and organs and some of the description bodies here in this text, don't think of membership at a club. Think about members of a body. Our bodies are united with Jesus like limbs and organs are united in a body. And then he's taking this vivid, vivid language about body parts, and he says in verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? And that is, if, if you're listening to how Paul's unpacking that imagery, it's scandalous. If you're part of Christ and you're taking a member of Christ and uniting with a prostitute in the action of sex, is that how Christ conducts himself? And the answer is no. Christ would never do that. Christ would never do that with his body. And then he goes on to, to unpack the idea of union from Genesis 2.24, that there's a male and female, and they, and they are united through the act of sex and become one person. And this word that's translated there uh, to, to unite, or some, some uh, translations have joined, is also vivid. It has this, this meaning that it can be used in other contexts of welding two pieces of metal together. 
And here the meaning is completely joining two people through this act, through this union. And then verse 12 says that our union is with Jesus. And it uses the word spirit, but it's being used there in that sense to mean that our entire beings, our body, soul, and spirit, are united with Christ, welded to him by the fire of his grace. And then it says this in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Flee sexual immorality. Many people think Paul is using that and that it would bring to mind to the original readers the story of Genesis 39 when a man named Joseph was being seduced by his boss's wife. And in that incident, the wife grabs Joseph by his garment because she wants to sleep with him, but Joseph runs away, and he runs away so quickly that he leaves his garment behind. And Paul is, is saying that's the same type of commitment that we need to, the, to have to the holiness of Christ and his cause, that we would flee it, leave whatever we need to be behind because we're going to take this seriously. We are going to run away from any type of temptation and sexual immorality that takes us out of the bonds of marriage where sex is made for. Thus, he takes this specific situation of sex with a prostitute, and he starts to unpack this uniqueness of why is that a unique sin? How should we think about it? And one of the things I want to pause here or maybe slow down and unpack a little bit more is this phrase where he says, all other sins a person commits outside of the body all other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, you may have been in a religious setting where that verse has been used to say that sexual sin is like such a big deal that, there, that it almost is borderline unpardonable, that there isn't even some type of forgiveness for it because it's so unique, it's so ingrained, that, that, that it's kind of at this really ultimate level where you have all these other sins that the Bible talks about, but then sexual sins are up here, and you, they use this verse to justify it. And I want to push back on that because I don't think that's what the verse is saying. I do think that the verse is saying that, that sexual sin is unique, but not that it's like the worst thing that you could ever do. And the, and the way that, that you can wrap your mind around that is that it is saying that there are other sins that people commit that are outside of the body. But sexual sin is unique because it's with your body. There's other sins that you can commit, but it isn't so bodily as this type of sin that relates to sexual sin. It's not that it's an unforgivable or exceptional sin. It's just that it's unique because it's an embodied sin. And so then he goes back, and, and you can think about how uh, this can apply to the situation with a prostitute. This is a person going to a temple, in this case, paying money to have sex with a woman, uh, and is saying with his body to her, I am using you for my own selfish ends because I have this impulse, this, 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 this need that my body has, and I just want you to fulfill that need. I am communicating to you with my body this selfish act that wants my own personal fulfillment, rather than what we ought to communicate with the act of sex with our body, especially in the covenant of marriage, that I am giving my entire self to you in love, rather than taking from you. This act of sex at the temple is communicating with our body that I want to take from you, but in the covenant of marriage is I want to give of myself and commit myself to you. 
So that's another way he unpacks what's going on here and how, how we should think about uh, the act of sex and uh, the importance of our body through this framework of union with Christ. And then he has a couple more. Temple is the next one. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. The temple is a place that's set apart for God because it's holy. It's because it's the place where God's presence dwells in this religious, physical building in a unique way, and God's people go to that place to meet with God and his presence. And he's saying that you are a temple. You are the place that God dwells through his spirit. That's what our body is, a place for the presence of God through his Holy Spirit to take residence up in ourselves. That's how sacred, that's how special your body is. So therefore, use it in a way that brings him honor and glory. And then the last image he uses is the image of redemption in verses 19 through 20, where he says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Bought with a price brings to mind the category, the scriptural categories of redemption. Think about the story of Exodus in the Old Testament where God's people are redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and no longer belong to Pharaoh, but now belong to the Lord. And so too, in the New Testament, we were under the bondage of sin, but the Lord Jesus paid the price to free us, and that price was his blood. And now we are free by belonging to him. And now, Paul is using all these images, resurrection, union in Christ, temple, and redemption, to drive home his point. Your body is not yours. It belongs to God. So if you're answering the question, what can I do with my body, or what is the purpose of my body, he says that the answer is to bring God glory in your body because your body matters to God. Think about the resurrection. Because your body is united to Jesus. Because your body is the dwelling place of God's spirit. And because God bought you with a price that cost him his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, based on all of that, therefore, what you do with your body is you glorify God with your body, including in the act of sex. So therefore, honor God with your body. The Corinthians don't get this quite yet. They haven't applied the implications of the gospel in all of life. And Paul is writing to these Christians who are struggling to do this. They're struggling with what it means to follow Jesus. And many of them are not connecting the dots quite yet. And I want to end and conclude this message reflecting on grace. Because that's where Paul is as well. He's not saying this framework and pushing back on these uh, things in the church because he wants to just leave them in condemnation, that he wants to leave them feeling like dirty and icky about their actions. He's not trying to do that. He wants them to change their life. He wants them to start unpacking in a fuller sense the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't want to do that through condemnation. He wants to do that through grace. And I want to linger there because not only Paul lingers there, but also because I know that uh, through pastoral ministry over the years that often we hear a different message, especially when any type of topic about sex and the body come up. You might hear messages throughout your life that lack the radical grace found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an illustration of something that, that some version of this that you've heard or I've heard throughout maybe your religious experience, right? 
Maybe you've heard a talk when a leader said that uh, being intimate with another person is like taking two pieces of paper and gluing them together. And that's a fine image of what marriage is and some of the images coming from Genesis. And I, I, I use this illustration because I've heard it before in different settings. And so that's what intimacy and sex is like. You take two pieces of paper and you glue them together. But if you don't get married, and this is how the youth group message goes, right? If you don't get married, it's like you break up and it's like tearing apart these papers, right? You gotta tear them apart, but because they're glued together, parts of that person still are connected to you and there's nothing you can do to ever separate it. It's just what it is. So therefore, don't do it in the first place. But that message is such an awful message because it leaves people with this sense of permanency that, that, that makes them feel like, well, and that, does that mean just the rest of my life I'm stained now? Does that mean that the rest of my life that I'm going to be rejected by another human being, maybe a potential spouse someday because of this, this thing that I did in my life or that was done to me? Does this mean that, that God doesn't quite love me as much as he loves other people that wasn't connected to another human being and pulled apart like that? This is unfortunate. Although that image might highlight the uniqueness of union with another through sex, it falls way short by leaving us with this sense of permanence because of our past. And it's often a huge struggle with many people in pastoral ministry that have heard a message like that, and all they think is that they wish they could have changed what happened, because now it feels like, well, I am who I am, and there's nothing that can change me. And I want to point us back to the gospel, because the gospel doesn't leave us there. Grace doesn't leave us there. Remember what Paul said in verse 11, just a couple verses before this section. He says, that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In Christ, you are not stained, you're washed clean. In Christ, you're not discounted, but rather chosen by a God and sanctified. That means he picked you and set you apart for his holy purposes. In Christ, you're not a disappointment because of your past, but rather you are declared, justified, righteous in Christ, which means you are innocent, you are accepted, and the Lord is not holding your past against you. That's where the gospel goes with this message of body and sex. It doesn't just leave us in the sense where I wish we could do a, have a do-over in my life and there's nothing I can do about it because I'm permanently stained by my past. No, the gospel says you are washed, brothers and sisters. You are made new. You are set apart for his sanctified and holy purposes, and he declares you innocent, accepted in his grace forever and ever and ever. In light of the gospel, therefore, because of this radical grace, remember, brothers and sisters, that you were not your own. You were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and now you belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and our Savior. So therefore, honor God with your bodies.